Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all The dead won't buy me. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Well, hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Bad Taste Crime Cast here. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. And we're alive. <laughs> Still. In and these... we're ready to tell you a story. In these uncertain times. Oh my god. Yes. That's really what I feel like our mission is now is to just like provide a small little hour and a half escape from all of <laughs> the crazy bullshit. You can take comfort in our crazy bullshit. <laughs> yes. Twenty twenty has been a real curveball. <laughs> mm, that is being very generous. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's taking us on a wheel real wild ride. Oh it's a roller god. coaster that's coming off the tracks. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. But you know We'll talk about that on a <laughs> later date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are still grappling, I think, with a lot of thoughts on the things that are going on at the moment. And so Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we will make comments eventually, but not right now. <laughs> yes, yes. We're right currently right now it's in the thick of things so we need, you know. Yeah. To see the light of day before we can yes. <laughs> really yeah. process what's going on. Yeah. Uh so we've got a great show for you as always, but first let's head over to the newsroom. So today, our news comes from San Diego, specifically um, the town of View, where on May 27th, police received an alert that somebody had broken into the View bank. And when they got there, it was about 3.30 in the morning. They found a broken window near one of the drive through areas at the bank. The alarm company was able to see um, the like CCTV video that they had set up inside of the bank. And they mm-hmm. had given a heads up to police that whoever had 
broken in, had gone to the break room and was using the microwave. So, you know, <laughs> oh, you'll love this. Heat up that uh, burrito. <laughs> you'll love this. They went inside. They located the intruders and he told authorities that he had gone into the bank so that he could microwave his Hot Pockets. Of course. What kind of hot pocket? Ham and cheese? Meatball? What are we talking about here? Did not specify. <laughs> Chicken, um, broccoli, cheddar? <laughs> ooh, did not specify. But it was funny because they had a... Um, here's the thing. is The guy who broke in, he hasn't been identified, but they have said that he is homeless. And so, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what's going on there. But when yeah. they asked him, like... Um, there was a news crew there that was interviewing uh, police about and and the suspect about like what was going on. They were like, "You broke in to microwave a hot pocket." And he was like, "Yeah." And when they asked him like, "Do you do you regret like breaking in to <laughs> microwave a hot pocket?" He was like, "Nah, fucking not for the hot pocket. It was great. Of yeah, course, I'd right? do it again for the hot pocket. It's like it's all oh. about the hot pocket." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did it all for the hot bucket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill. This week, we are talking about Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, which by the time this episode comes out, will have been on Netflix for a couple of weeks. I watched the whole dang thing. <laughs> I'm about halfway done uh, at mm-hmm. the moment, and I would assume... At this point, almost everybody knows who Jeffrey Epstein is. If you don't, um, Jeffrey Epstein was a wealthy, convicted pedophile who had the ear of some of the most powerful people in the country. In 2019, he was arrested on charges of sex trafficking of minors in Florida and New York that stemmed from allegations that he had been sexually abusing young women for literally decades. And then following his arrest, Epstein was killed. I... I mean, he was found dead in his prison cell. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, subsequently, all charges were dropped because you can't convict a dead man. Um, But investigations continue into his empire and companion Ghislaine Maxwell. This particularly looks at kind of the timeline of events, but also brings in a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of the... um, women who were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about this is there isn't necessarily like new damning information that really came out in this documentary. However, I think there is something very compelling when you watch and see these women who have been abused tell their stories. Yes. That is, like I said, very compelling. Their, their names, for the most part, weren't really discussed. Like, they didn't really talk too much in the press about the women that were affected. They right. just kept saying, you know, girls, women, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But if you don't put uh, faces and names to it, then people aren't going to care. You know what I mean? Like, if you're not speaking about the victims, then the story is going to be pushed to the wayside. And we saw that a little bit after he uh, was found dead. (laughs) I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And, of course, like, what happened after that? Like, nothing. Big fat zero. Right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting look. I think if you 
have a very general knowledge of the case, it's worth watching because it does a nice job of providing sort of an overview of everything, like all the way back from the very beginning in a nice timeline. But you're also hearing directly from these victims uh, telling their stories. And it really, I mean, even things like some of the, the videos from like the depositions and stuff are in there. And some of the videos from when they executed search warrants on his properties, like those are included. And for me, I'm sure those things have been out there. But for me, those are things that I had not seen yet. So that was kind of just an interesting little peek behind the curtain as to this investigation. Yeah. I mean, it's very unfortunate that he was found dead in his prison cell and was unable to be prosecuted because Mm -hmm. that is generally where you would hear a lot of this information come out is during a court proceeding. But I applaud the victims for coming out and telling their stories because um, I think especially now in an age where we're talking about taking down these powerful people who have been serial abusers for years Um, It's really important that people stand up and speak to allow other people to do that. You know, it's like giving permission for other people to come out and say these powerful people aren't going to ruin my life and they can't ruin your life type of a thing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was also really interesting when they started um, in the documentary kind of like uh, talking about all the people he knew and all the people that were seen around him and on the island I found that very interesting. Yeah. Because not all of those people were discussed in um, the press either. No. And also, um, that that handyman who went and worked on the island was really, really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like, and, and I like they made a point of also saying, you know, like not everybody was there and stayed there. Some people went for a business meeting and left. So not, like not everybody was privy to what was happening and that's also kind of why it kept going on for so long is that you know the people who weren't interested in what was happening were kept away from it. Right. So, yeah. Um I think it's a, I think honestly they did a very good job. It's a four episode uh series. So mm-hmm. not a huge watch, but I definitely think they they did a nice job of keeping everything uh, compact and like not. I know that's our big issue is when things kind of get drawn out, it becomes a little boring or repetitive or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or they concentrate on information that is just like absolutely not even important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I thought they did a good job with this one. I think it's worth a watch. Uh, if you got a day on a weekend to sit down and watch four episodes, then do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. it's on netflix again it's called jeffrey epstein filthy rich definitely check it out this is actually the first release in what is going to be this sort of deluge of jeffrey epstein related content yeah there the in the very very beginning of this series they talk about a woman who is writing an article Mm-hmm. about Jeffrey Epstein. She's actually in the process of writing a book that is simultaneously being produced by, I think, HBO into a series or a documentary or something along those lines. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And there's already been a couple other networks who have things signed on. So there's definitely going to be more if you really wanted it, Jeffrey Epstein content. But 
as long as they're asking the right questions. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because it's not like there's going to be, as far as I'm aware, not really going to be anything new coming out. I mean, it's a lot of it, I think, is going to be the same information over and over again. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, we'll see if they can get anything, you know, declassified or whatever, if what kind of investigative tools they can use, because there is information that is still classified yeah. and a yeah. lot of redacted and- shit. So. Yeah. Well, and I think that, too, if Ghislaine Maxwell ter- were ever to be charged, that would be when we yeah, would where see is she? a lot. I forgot about her. <laughs> Who is she or where is she? Where is she? So when Epstein... I know she, like, fled. <laughs> yeah. When Epstein was uh, originally arrested in 2019, she, like, pieced the fuck out and has been keeping a very, very low-key profile um, I remember shortly after his arrest that people had mentioned they had spotted her outside of like a like a cafe in LA or something weird. But other than that, like nobody knows where she is at the moment. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 So that's that's another kind of weird thing too, is some of these players are like she has just turned out to be super elusive um mm-hmm. and uncooperative. Yeah. So yeah, or she's being hidden. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, it, and it could be a little of both. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So check that out if you want, I guess. It's pretty good. <laughs> I'm always like, if you want to watch something super depressing, check this out. <laughs> yeah, as always. It's always our pick. Depressing. <laughs> yeah, that's it's kind of the nature of the beast, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Um Mine is definitely a little rough, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> mine's... <meh. laughs> yeah. Kind of lighter. <laughs> Janelle, you want to tell us what we're, uh, what we're talking about today? Yeah, so uh, little did I know that the topic that I picked was going to be so fitting for the times that we're living in right now. Oh my god, um, true. <laughs> I read about this uh, case um, for another episode that we did about natural disasters, but it didn't really uh, fit into just a natural disaster because, or a man-made disaster, because there was so much politics going around um, in the story. So I decided that we should talk about cases where the rich just ruin everything. (laughs) Which I am on board for. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Look at the state of our times. The rich do, in fact, ruin everything. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) for my particular case, I wanted to talk about the very interesting and strange Johnstown flood. Now, you're probably like, "How the uh, what? It's a flood. Like, how is the rich ruining everything? Well, you better buckle up because this is going to be a fucking roller coaster. We're going to talk about robber barons. We're going to talk about earthen dams. And we're going to talk about poor people. So prepare. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I am ready for all of those things. Yes. So Johnstown is a small, well, was a small town uh, about 60 miles east of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Now, it lay on a tributary point of three different rivers and has been known to be in a flooding zone. So flooding happens quite frequently. Now, we're going all the way back in the Wayback Time Machine to the 1880s, specifically. And we're going to look at the disaster that occurred in 1889. 
I feel like we've been on this like 1800s kick recently. Yes, <laughs> I I have been severely. Yeah. I wanted to go. I wanted to take myself out of this time period for a little bit. Um, Understandable. Modernity is ruining my life right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. At this point, Johnstown, 1889, it was home to 30,000 people, which is not a small number, especially for this time period. That's a pretty large, significant uh, size of a town. It had a burgeoning steel industry and was home to a very small portion of men who made their riches specifically within that industry. So... When I said robber barons, I'm talking about the the monopoly that was the steel industry. (laughs) So this quick and large influx of population was due to the steel industry being in that area, being built so quickly and so fast up on the river. So if you're not familiar with how uh, steel production works, you have to have a source of water nearby. So a lot of steel towns and steel uh, manufacturers were along rivers or lakes so that they could produce the steel. Okay. Yes. So (laughs) not uncommon to see that. Almost all of the people who lived in Johnstown had something to do with the steel industry. They had to strip the tree line along the river to put in the manufacturing area, but also to increase housing for the people that were moving there to work in the industry. Okay. Now, when you strip the tree line, of course, along the river, you're going to increase the chance of flooding and runoff um, kind of increasing. So Mm -hmm. that also made um, the area even more of a flood zone. Science 101, guys. Come yes. on. <laughs> <laughs> the steel manufacturer also artificially narrowed some points of the river so that they could take some of that river off into um, the manufacturing area because, again, you need an ass ton of water to make steel. So all of these things were coming together and increasing the floodability of the region and was just the beginning of a mega disaster. Now, Jonestown, Jonestown, pfft, Johnstown, <laughs> I'm not going to lie as I was reading when you Jonestown, Jonestown, when I Jonestown. looked at your notes at first, I thought it said Jonestown. I was like, what? Wait, what? I and then I, and I to... kept doing that. It's Johnstown as in the name John. Yes. Very different Johnstown. things. Very different areas altogether. Different time yeah. periods, different fucking <laughs> hemispheres. Um, <laughs> now. In this area, there had been other large businesses before steel manufacturing moved in. So between 1838 and 1853, they built an earthen dam so that they could become part of the canal system to get goods in and around Pennsylvania. Because before we had the mass train system, the one way that people would bring goods to and fro was a series of river systems and canals and locks. So Okay. If you're in Pennsylvania or Ohio, specifically uh, Michigan, that area right there, where all of the lakes, uh, the Great Lakes come about, people would come up um, in the Atlantic Ocean. They would follow along up over top of New York and go down into the Great Lakes. And then a series of canals and locks would take them from the Great Lakes into all of these different river, river tributaries so that they could spread goods across the Midwest. 
So if you if you visit now still, uh, especially around Cleveland, you can see the the lock system, the Erie Canal, um, to this day still kind of in use. But at this okay. time, it was it was the only way that people were getting goods across anywhere. Right? Gotcha. There wasn't like horse and buggy wasn't really like a great way. There wasn't cars yet, and trains were just starting to be built. Yeah. Um, so that uh, dam had a reservoir behind it, and that would become Lake Connemaw. As railroads began to start to kind of overtake the canal system, and it started to fade from popularity, the area began to see a change um, in industry from canals to steel. And so because the dam and the lake were not being used for canals anymore, they were looking to sell it off. So they sold this dam area, this Lake Connemaw, to a wealthy businessman by the name of Henry Clay Frick. Does that name sound familiar to you at all? Henry, what was it? Henry? Henry Clay Frick. Uh, no. Should it? Um, if if you're, uh, you know, interested in industrialists at all or... No. Um, I gotta say, I am not. <laughs> Uh, monopolies of the 1800s. Um, nope, another myth. Because a lot of industries back there were owned by, like, back then were owned by two people, and that was it. <laughs> gotcha. So, uh, Frick was an industrialist who founded H.C. Frick and Company, which was a Coke manufacturing company, because okay. we put cocaine in our everything back then. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he was also the chairman of Carnegie Steel Company. And <laughs> this is where it gets really hilarious and interesting. He also financed the construction of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the okay. Reading Company, which if you have ever like, played Monopoly. Reading Railroad? Are two, yep. Are two, <laughs> are two pieces on Monopoly. Okay, <laughs> see, now you're Railroad. talking games, and that is yes. where my forte is at. <laughs> yes. So that um, I know. If you look... If you look at uh, all of the places on Monopoly, you will be transported back in time to this period when exactly there were Monopolies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, makes so <laughs> much sense. <the> names. <laughs> so the dam was purchased and it was to be um, kind of redone and recreated and envisioned as an exclusive, exclusive and secretive retreat for the titans of industry. So it's going to become kind of like a vacation lake home situation. The area was bought and it was turned into the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club in 1880. The dam, however, was already in horrible shape when they purchased this and when they decided to create the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, they were made aware that the the dam was prone to leaks and that it needed repairs. Like, they were fully aware that it could collapse, and they were fully aware that it needed work. Okay. I feel like this is one of these really common things where it's like, yeah, we know, <laughs> but we just don't care because <laughs> exactly. it's going to cost us money. Yes. Well, I mean, the money's not even the problem. It's just like, eh, it's too much work, really, mm-hmm. is the issue. Mm-hmm. Now, not only was the dam not cared for and it leaked, the former owner, who was Congressman John Riley, before selling the dam, took away the discharge pipes that were there and sold them for scrap. Okay. 
Okay. So just to give you a little background about earthen dams, earthen dams are just dams made of compacted dirt. They are built up to form a wall and the discharge pipes are at the bottom and they allow for water to flow down to relieve some of the pressure that is caused by the reservoir when it reaches capacity. It also allows for uh, the the reservoir to be kind of lifted and um, kind of lowered at any point in time, mm-hmm. not unlike a canal and lock system where they raise the water to let a boat go through or lower the bo- the water to let a boat go through. Okay. So when he took away these discharge pipes, not only did it not allow for the pressure of the capacity of the reservoir to be kind of relieved. It also didn't allow for the Lake Kanama to be raised or lifted if there was an emergency. Okay. So, so you can it sounds like <laughs> they are setting themselves up for failure. Exactly. Okay. Earthen dams also are extremely notorious for failure. Um, Removing the pipes increased the failure, not being able to repair it increased the failure. So you have all of these things compounding on top of each other. Now, in addition to all these dumbass moves that the people made before the the area was purchased, they also did something really fucking stupid after they bought it. They added fish screens to the reservoir. Now, if you've ever seen a fish screen, it's extremely um, small mesh, not super fine mesh, but small mesh that does not allow for game fish to leave an area. Okay. So they installed these screens so that the fish would not go over the dam and into the river so they could keep the fish there so that they could have their hunting and fishing club. Right? Sounds, of course. Sounds sensible. Well, um, these shitty screens were so fine, like too fine of a mesh, that it was building up debris and eventually caused slowly for water to start backing up. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Now, one member of the club, Daniel Johnson Morrell, he was a Republican House of Representatives member for Pennsylvania, and he went and visited the club as he was going to become a member. But what sealed his membership was this dam. He decided to become a member because he saw that there were issues with the dam and that it should be brought up to code, and he was in fear that the dam would fail and cause a massive flood. Okay, that sounds pretty positive. Yeah, so upon membership, he starts petitioning all the people in the club to put the to pool their money together to fix the dam so that there wouldn't be a failure and so that it would be brought up to code. He went so far as to put up his own cash to have repairs done to the dam because nobody else really wanted to do it. He's like, I will put in money to start repairing it. But yeah. the president of the club denied his request oh my god really yes <laughs> I, i'm kind of surprised to even say like that i mean if you have if you literally have somebody who's like i will pay for it i will fund it so we can do this to just be like nah that's fine it's all good like well the one issue with it is because they would have they wouldn't be allowed to fish or do anything on the lake as repairs were being done, and who knows how long the repairs oh. would be going. Oh my gosh, so that's terrible. They couldn't have their leisure time, so oh, it was no. a huge issue. <laughs> oh my gosh, you gotta have that lake time. Exactly. So, in May of 1889, there was record storms and flooding um, that were occurring in Pennsylvania. 
On the afternoon of May 31st, the rain was coming down extremely hard, and one of the spill screens on the dam became severely clogged and began running over with rainwater. An engineer who was along the river, um, because they did still have engineers go out and do surveys, even though they <laughs> never fucking fixed anything, yeah. um, they would do like mud patching and that was it. So you just take some wet mud and plug up cracks and holes. Oh, and if yeah. you've ever seen... If you've ever seen the streets of Illinois, you know uh, that patching doesn't work. <laughs> no. Patching doesn't work. <laughs> we are like the kings and queens of patching roads here in Illinois. Yeah. And we have a very terrible transportation. They will do that department. for years <laughs> before they yeah, fix they it. Won't, they won't resurface a, a road nope. to save their life. So nope. it made me think of that and it, it made me chuckle a little bit. <laughs> it's a good comparison. We can identify yes. with that. <laughs> it's very close to home. Um, so the engineer saw the river water backing up and he grew extremely concerned and he rode his horse down the hill to warn of the potential failure of the dam. But the telegraph lines were down due to the storm. So at 310, a loud bang rang out across the valley and the dam gave way. The entirety of Lake Kanama emptied into the river, flooding the entire valley with 14.55 million cubic meters of water, which is 3.843 billion gallons of water. Oh my gosh, that is a lot of water. Yes, it came rushing out at 41 miles per hour down the valley. Holy crap. Yes. As the water rushed down the valley, it began to pick up debris such as trees, buildings, and even fucking livestock. So people's fucking cows were floating down in this massive goddamn flood. I'm not going to lie. The image of just like cows being swept away in a flood is kind of comedic. Like just the thought. Of just, I think like, it's sad. It's, it like, is I sad. Have, Don't get I me wrong. a bleeding heart and... The thought of a cow not being able to swim like, I know. makes me on the verge of tears. I'm just like, but, oh, little cow, it can't I'm, swim. It is sad, but also if it was done you in go a to the, you go to slapsticky floodway, that. yeah, that's that's my image yeah. is like a Monty so Python yes. like cow floating exactly down a river. Exactly where you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all of these things are going down river. The wall of water then came to the Kanama Viaduct, which was a 78-foot-high railroad bridge. The flood was monetarily kind of stopped when the debris um, lodged against the bridge's arches. But within seven minutes, the viaduct collapsed and allowed the flood to resume, now with bits and pieces of a fucking railroad in it. Oh my god. Okay. So, now the weird thing that happened when it kind of stopped at this bridge is after it burst through the viaduct, it actually momentarily increased the strength of the flood. It kind of had this built up pent up energy and it resulted in a stronger wave of water hitting places downstream because it backed up all of this debris. Okay. So <laughs> it yeah. actually made it worse instead if if it would have just flowed under the bridge and not stopped and uh took the bridge with it the disaster downstream would have been significantly reduced wow yeah so it took 57 minutes for this flood to roll down the hill and hit the center of johnstown 
Once it got to town, it, of course, destroyed homes, picked up more trains off the tracks. The scary thing that happened, though, was boilers exploded when the flood hit the Gautier Wireworks Company. It caused black smoke um, that the rest of the area could see from miles and miles around. Oh, my gosh. There were also literal miles of barbed wire that became entangled in the debris floodwaters from this wireworks company. So not only are you getting swept away by water, but you also have the potential to be hit, cut, maimed by the debris floating in the river. It's like a horror flood. Like it's like having that kind of shit in there. There's no way that you could get in there and not. I mean, I think the speed alone at which it is traveling obviously makes it lethal enough if you were to get in the way of that. But like. Like you said, add barbed wire, and it's like, okay, yeah. well... Barbed wire, and the fucking water was catching on fire. Like, come yeah. on now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that wasn't the last place for the debris to actually hit. There was one more bridge that it hit called Stone Bridge, and when it hit this Stone Bridge, it, again, ignited. So this is a second fire. But this fire was so strong and powerful that it burned for three days nonstop. Wow. The flood, the flood killed two thousand two hundred and nine people. Oh my god! It wiped out entire families. I'm talking not just small families because this is 1889. I'm talking about families of ten, twelve, including grandparents. So you can go to the Johnstown Flood Museum and see the complete list of people um, who were named, and then also they have a list of unidentified people. But if you look at this list, you will see, it because it goes by last name alphabetically, you will see entire families with their ages. I'm talking infants, children, the elderly, like entire fucking families wiped out. There were 1,600 homes destroyed. In total, 99 entire families died in the flood, including 396 children, 124 women, and 198 men were widowed. 98 children were orphaned and one third of the dead. So 778 people were never identified. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's. And do you know Mm -hmm. offhand, like how big the town of Johnstown was? I mean, this sounds like a substantial amount of the actual population as a whole. There were 30,000 people. Okay. That's, I mean, still, still a lot of fucking people. Yeah. Um, it's it's a good chunk. Um, there is uh, an area in the Grandview Cemetery in Westmont called the Plot of the Unknown that has the remains of the people who were never identified. The other chilling thing was bodies were actually found as far as the middle of Ohio. Oh my God! From the river being pushing out all of this stuff. Um, Damn. and there was the last person was found in nineteen eleven in nineteen eleven, and they were not identified. Wow. So, yeah. Immediately following the flood, able-bodied men began reconstructing Stone Bridge so that supplies could reach the town via the train system. It took them seven days to uh, rebuild the bridge so that they could get supplies because they didn't have any clean water or food or blankets or anything. So Clara Barton, um, which if you're familiar with her, she is one of the people who created the Red Cross. Her 
group, the Red Cross, was just like it just started. And so they were one of the first groups to show up to aid in the effort to help uh, rebuild the town and uh, the people that were living there who survived. This would actually be their first major disaster relief effort. Um, And they actually got quite a bit of donations for the relief effort from all over the U.S. and uh, overseas. And they, um, the total that they brought in, and I wasn't sure if this was in current dollars or in dollars of the time, but it was, it was $3 million that they brought in. So even it's quite, the thing is, is even if it's in old timey money or in current money, like that's still a (laughs) fucking lot. Yeah. 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 So they run in $3 million to help in the efforts, which was great. Um, Now, here's the thing. The members of the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, they were like, you know what? We should probably help out, too. So they donated a thousand blankets. (laughs) How nice of them. That's uh... a thousand blankets and a couple thousand dollars. Wow. But none of the members of the club actually ever publicly expressed remorse for the tragedy. And immediately following the flood, the American Society of Civil Engineers appointed a committee to investigate. And the ACE committee, when they completed their report on January 15th of 1890, the report was actually sealed and not shared with other ASCE members or the public until one year later. So they were really trying to suppress this report for some particular reason. Um, They concluded, uh, (laughs) which there's controversy of whether or not this was actually the report's conclusion or if it was changed. But the conclusion of the report was that South Fork Dam would have failed even if it had had been maintained properly. Now, there is a great debate as to whether or not the... um, the report that they filed in the investigation was changed, which is why they held on to the report for over a year. Yeah. There is some controversy and speculation that the report was redone so that the conclusion was in favor of the people who owned the dam, mm-hmm. which would not be surprising. No. But they did another analysis in 2016, and it concluded that the modifications made to the dam severely severely increased its failure rate. So by taking away those discharged pipes and adding the fish screens, it more than doubled the failure rate of the dam. Yeah. So a court case was eventually brought against the hunting club, but it went nowhere as, well, you know, all the people were rich. So right, <laughs> they yeah. kept stating publicly, um, the, like the people who were part of the club, that it was an act of God and they had nothing to do with it, which uh-huh. of course, not true. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is a significant amount of public outcry, and the press ran a ton of political cartoons that are fucking amazing about the incident. And I put one at the end of the notes that is really like a piece de resistance of of political cartoons. It's a bunch of all these titans of industry, uh, like fishing on the edge of the dam and looking as it starts to pop all of these leaks, and they're like laughing and hunting. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous Ugh, but accurate so (laughs) ridiculously accurate yep (laughs) (laughs) so this is like the really crazy era if if you go back into u.s history this is the era of like when um workers rights and anarchism started becoming a thing and people were realizing the huge income gap and that workers had fucking rights (laughs) so this event really kind of caused this political outcry. 
that all these rich people were able to be negligent and it affected the lives of those who were economically disadvantaged. How very fucking fitting. Yeah. <laughs> for the oh time period in which we live currently. Um, so one of the articles that I read was from the Post-Gazette, and I'm just going to read this quote because I thought it was really poignant. Uh, it says, nobody was attempting to kill 2,000 people, but there is an element of being indifferent that is extremely sinister, too. Yeah. That, I think, applies to a lot of these situations where you have some sort of big interest or, or big business or, you know, some financier mm-hmm. involved in a project like this, where obviously, I think, I would probably, honestly, probably say with these catastrophic failures, 95% of the time, maybe even 99% of the time, nobody is out to kill people. But, right, you know, if you don't react or you don't have any i'm going to, i'm going to quote a poster that people are seeing silence is violence yes <laughs> like, exactly not saying anything is still an act of violence exactly okay? yeah yeah <laughs> it, the you don't see it you don't hear it mm-hmm. don't speak it thing it's it, you're you're still being an aggressor because you know something is happening and you choose to do nothing about it <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, so. I mean, I wonder if these people really think if I just ignore this, that's going to go away. And mm-hmm. oh, yeah, definitely. Or because they're rich, too. Like, oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't deal with that. Somebody else will. Right. You know, right. Like, yeah. oh, that's not my department kind of mm-hmm. a thing. So uh, this actually, this event also changed the landscape of law in the U.S. a little bit, too. U.S. courts began using a British law called strict liability, which wasn't really used previously. And strict liability means that they, the you know, in issues like this, damages have to be paid for messes that are created without the plaintiff having to prove negligence. Okay. So you can take a case like this to court to discuss negligence without proving necessarily uh their actions were negligent so it's just the intent of negligence gotcha basically is what that boils down to of course this this change came too little too late for those 2209 people who lost their lives but at least when instances like this occurred in the future people are able to more openly discuss um, negligence when it comes yeah. to catastrophic disaster. Yeah. Sadly, this was not the last time that they would have a catastrophic flood. Oh, no. In 1936, the area flooded again after 13 days straight of nonstop rain. I'm going to read a firsthand account of the flood of 1936 because I think it sums up Kind of the thoughts and feelings of what was happening, so you can get a better idea of exactly what was happening, too, back in the 1889 flood. Mm -hmm. I wish I could put, like, old uh, player piano music behind this as I talked, and I really am going to resist the urge to do an old-timey man voice, but (laughs) (laughs) I might fall into it by accident. I mean, honestly, I'd be really impressed if you could keep it up for, what, four pages? (laughs) Five pages? <laughs> I'll read very fast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so this is the first-hand account of the 1936 uh, Johnstown flood. Now that the open for business sign is hung out in Johnstown, it is high time that I give an account of myself, of course, if in business, under innumerable hardships. Johnstown was all prepared for its spring festival. Stoves were loaded with spring merchandise, and the town never looked better. On the morrow, the festival was to begin. St. Patrick's Day 1936 will long be remembered by all the citizens of this city. About every day for eight days, it had been raining off and on, but on Tuesday morning, it began to pour. I hated to go to school in the awful downpour. All morning, I felt uneasy while watching the water pour off the mount side near our school building, which is located near the Stony Creek River in the downtown section. At noon, a number of us stood at the fire escape door of our balcony on the fourth floor watching the river. You could see it rising steadily. Finally, it went over the banks and into the streets. I was hoping that our principal would send home over 13 or 1400 pupils. At last at 1.30, we were excused. I immediately got my wraps and made out one dash for the street. I had to wade water almost to my waist, dirty, ice-cold water. When I got to Main Street, cars had stopped running, so I walked home approximately two miles through all kinds of water and debris. I changed my clothes immediately, bathed, and had a hot cup of tea. So far, I felt none the worse except for a little nervous reaction for a few days. Who wouldn't, though? We've been through enough. All the way home, I could see the lower streets continue to fill with water. Of course, I was getting higher and higher. We are at 168 feet above the main port of the city here. The creek here overflowed and flowed down the street, park one street away from us. Dad had a hard time getting home. Several places and bridges were washed away so that he was trapped. During the late afternoon, our telephone service went out. Then we lost all connection with folks until next morning. Dad went to help one of our relatives, but couldn't get near their home. Men were operating boats up and down the street to rescue people. Our next utility to, that to go was electricity. We used candles for the rest of the eve. When we went to bed, I couldn't sleep for thinking about people sitting in their homes in darkness, watching the water creep up higher and higher. The peak reached at 2 a.m. From then on, the water went down about as rapidly as it came, but with the destruction in left in its path. The law-laying section certainly did have a mud bath. Mud, mud, everywhere mud. Our town's face should be lifted with this clay pack. <laughs> it's a little joke there. There were about as many different experiences as there are people in Johnstown. Some school children, teachers, clerks, and office workers were marooned in various buildings all night. Whole families were separated while fleeing to higher ground. Well, Wednesday, when everyone was breathing a sigh of relief and many people were looking at their flood-vanished possessions, out of sight, seeing the worst scare of all came over the radio, came the word of Quamahomig Dam had burst. That dam is owned by Bethlehem Steel Company. It is seven miles long. The whistle and bells sounded as in the 1889 flood. Of course, everyone became alarmed. People certainly did scram out of town. Out in our section, people bundled their youngsters into cars and trucks and drove away in a great hurry. Dad was helping some of the relatives in the flood. So I was here alone with Mother. Everyone was so worried about her, so a neighbor took her in his car to still higher ground, and I stayed home knowing that I could easily run off to the mountain back of our house if necessary. In a few hours, we learned that it was only a false alarm. That was a terrible thing. Several people died of shock. People are still dying with the flood as indirect cause. The after day I went all through town, it made me feel heartsick. It seemed almost hopeless, but everyone held his chin up and said, Johnstown shall be a bigger and better city. Our town is under martial control. Several thousands of troops are here. There's still a thousand here. The high school is the headquarters for the troops 
112th Infantry. State police are here, too. Our junior uh, high building is being used as a hospital and other offices. My school and the high school will be the last to get started. It will mean going to school for us until about June 15th or 20th. Our schools will be closing at different times. We had relatives here with us for a week. Yesterday they left because there was, there was, it's very illegible, but there has was on is what it says. <laughs> I helped them clean some. It was about a hundred times harder than a regular house cleaning. At last we have a newspaper, but we will still be without telephone service in our community. And it goes on to talk about how the stores and things are reopening but it also talked about the town is full of debris. Looks like a giant junk pile with bridges down. It's very hard to get from one part of the city to the other. And then it goes on to talk about the WPA. So what happened with this flood, because it, it was 1936, mm-hmm. they petitioned to FDR and they were able to get WPA men, WPA men and women out there to help in the relief efforts, um, because, of course, this is in the middle of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were uh, sent from the Midwest to come help the refugees and to clean out all of the debris. Um, and so then it also changed the the way that people in the town talked about their flooding problems. So they talked about the flood of 1889 and the flood of 1936. So what... I thought was kind of striking about this firsthand account was that they had a loss of life, but it wasn't as significant as the one in 1889. But you could see that there was like this kind of trauma that they had from the flood of 1889 still in 1936. Like yeah. people could still remember and still feel. And this is before the John's, the Johnstown Flood Museum was open. Mm-hmm. There was still like all of this kind of like storytelling going on about the flood of 1889 and how it greatly ap- impacted all of these people's lives. Yeah. Now, the 1936 flood, sadly, again, was not the last catastrophic flood that this oh region my had. Gosh. This is one of these things that I'm like, I kind of wish people would learn from the past. I don't exactly. Know. Um, there was another one in 1977, and that would be the last significant flood in the region because of uh, a lot of things were being passed through Congress about disaster relief. And they also changed the way that a lot of dams and canals and things were being um, looked after. Um, they were also dissolving some of the dams so that there wasn't going to be these catastrophic failures um, because that was the major concern was a catastrophic dam failure. Mm-hmm. And by 1977, the steel industry was pretty much gone. So um, they weren't using this area for steel uh, like they used to anymore. And so trees were, you know, coming back. The sides of the river started being built back up again. So that's why uh, we don't see as many flooding issues with it currently. Mm -hmm. But like I said, there is the Johnstown Museum. You can go visit uh, it. It talks mostly about the flood of 1889. But it also discusses a little bit about the flood of 1936 and 1977. It has some great firsthand accounts, pictures. They even um, replicated what is called a Oklahoma home. Now, an Oklahoma home is uh, a temporary shack that was built for refugees. And you can see uh, some of them still being used um, in other flood efforts. I think they're called a different name now, but uh, in Katrina... And other uh, hurricane disasters that we had recently, 
they have built temporary housing for refugees in other towns and it has a really great replica of an 1889 Oklahoma home. Mm-hmm. So I put the link in there. You can check it out. It's pretty interesting, but um, yeah. Wow. The South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club murdered 2,000 people is what I'm going to say. <laughs> that was an incredible story of a perfect example when rich people do literally nothing. Yes. So as I was doing the research for this, um, and I went back yesterday and kind of edited my notes, uh, it, it got real, real in the oh middle of the, reading that account going through it again. And I was like, Holy yeah, shit. yeah, <laughs> um, that's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And we've we have flooding issues in our area. Oh my and god. There have yes, been some pretty significant significant floods um by us. Mm-hmm. And we've had to have we've had to declare a state of emergency on more yeah. than one occasion within the past ten years. Um so global warming? I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's been real bad. <laughs> Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So for my story, we are going to take a little trip to South Africa. I've really been trying to like get back to our roots of like straight up murder. <laughs> okay. So, like, Where are you going with this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I decided to look at the Van Breda axe murders. Ooh. So the Van Breda family, um, it consisted of 54-year-old Martin, his wife, 55-year-old Teresa, their sons, 22-year-old Rudy and 20-year-old Henry, and their daughter, 16-year-old Marley. They were kind of this uh, – like, well, not kind of. They were an extremely successful real estate family. Martin was the managing director of the Australian branch of Ingle and Volkers and had interests in the education property sector. This actually led them to live in Australia for a time, um, but then they returned to South Africa. He had developed a private school in Pretoria called Woodhill College before selling it in 2011 for 185 million rand. Now, this is a little I'm learning things about South Africa today. So their currency is the South African Rand. It's equivalent to like five cents to the US dollar. So it's 
I, I, not a great exchange rate, but you're going to hear me do all of these in rand and not in dollars. So heads up on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> According to News 24, quote, other business interests include directorships of investment, property and education companies, including Edugro Holdings and Meridium Colleges in Poliquane, Pretoria, and Rustenburg. He was also a director of an education fund and of SmartScan, which provides machine guarding and safety products, end quote. So as far as the family's properties go, they had a couple of really big ones. The main was the Dizal's a golf estate home worth 4.6 million rand and an additional property in Kniza Knizna Knizna Yeah, we'll go with that. Sure. Um <laughs> that's worth, worth 1.4 million rand. All of this is to say that Martin Van Bretta had worked extremely hard to provide this life of wealth for his family. And I'm not even saying that in like a shady way either. Like it seems like he pretty much did everything by the book and wasn't this like, like the standard shifty businessman that we think of, you know, people Mm -hmm. like Jared Kushner or Donald Trump, like not that kind of shady. Well, (laughs) but honestly, like in all, they really seem to be like the pretty, a pretty average family, minus the fact that they were like filthy rich. Uh, They were pretty average. (laughs) As average as filthy rich can be. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) On January 27th, uh, 2015, around 7 a.m., Emergency services received a call from Henry Van Bretta that I'm actually going to play a portion of it for you now. Um, The clip I'm going to play, it starts about five minutes into the call uh, because the first five minutes is Henry and the dispatcher going back and forth about the address and location of the emergency in this sort of weird exchange. And you'll hear a little bit of that towards the end of the clip. It's, It's a little odd and almost seems like... Uh, well, we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, <laughs> but this is gonna this is gonna pick up sort of right after that exchange. Okay. What? And you, the patient? No, no, my family is someone attacked my family. Hey. Someone has attacked my family in my house. <laughs> okay, so you need the police or oh, an ambulance? An ambulance, please. Yeah. Who is injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house? Everyone, four people, yes. Adults, two adults? Two adults and two, well, three adults and one teenage girl, yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries, I look <laughs> Are they conscious? I don't think so, my sister's moving, but that's it. Suspects still on scene, B, sir. Are there any suspects on scene? Uh, no, no, they ran away. With what were they attacked? I, um, a, an, an axe. I, it, it was, I, I, I think I blacked out and I've just woken up. With an axe. Okay, stay on the line. I'm going to speak to the police. Thank you, but please stay in the ambulance as quickly as possible. Yes. 
But you're the only one that's conscious, you know, yes. the others are unconscious. Hold yes. it. No speak to police to check on your number where you are. But you don't know your street name, you say. The, the street name is Hoska Street. Okay, I'm not picking it up on the contact number that you're giving me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was a little hard to understand what I know. It's a little he tricky was it first, with the but... accent, but mm-hmm. um, he was very like calm. I mean, yeah, pretty... way too calm. Like and he there's... was reading. Yeah, and there's one of these things we talk about this a lot when we talk about reactions to things, and it's hard to judge. Um, obviously somebody's guilt or innocent solely based on their reaction to something or you can't ever predict like how people are going to react but at the same time i'd right expect for somebody to be a little bit more panicked if they had just been attacked their entire like they wake up to find their entire family dead like mm-hmm. i don't know little it was and he was like i said the whole call is about 10 minutes he was that mm-hmm. calm through the entire thing the whole time Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Henry calls emergency services to say that he had blacked out and woken up to find multiple members of his family had been attacked with an axe by an intruder. In later court testimony, one of the paramedics described the scene that they walked in on as the worst he had seen in 39 years and, quote, blood ran like a waterfall down the stairs, end quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> Authorities arrived to find Martin and Teresa dead on the first floor in a pool of blood. Near their bodies was their oldest son, Rudy, who was also dead, and daughter Marley, who was just barely clinging on to life. Along with the obvious fatal blows, Teresa and Rudy both had very minor defensive wounds, indicating that they had most likely been asleep before the attack. But Martin, however, had a deep wound on his back that possibly indicated an attempt to shield one of his family members from the attack. Marley also had extensive defensive wounds, possibly indicating that she had seen the attack coming. Um, Mm -hmm. Martin, Teresa, and Rudy were all declared dead at the scene, and Marley, who had suffered severe head trauma, was rushed to an ICU where she received extensive life-saving surgery, which was a process that would end up taking months. But she did survive the attack. Henry, however, had very minor injuries, um, although his initial statement to police he had said that a well-built black man wearing gloves and a balaclava had broken into the home. Police recovered an axe and a knife from the scene. Both were determined to have come from the Van Breda residence, and there wasn't any evidence of forced entry. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we can look at all of these initial things and say, yeah, that sounds a little sketch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But it's It's all like... Okay, if the weapons are coming from the home, you have one single person who has obviously not been attacked as bad as mm-hmm. everybody else. Like, okay. But at the time, the story of this masked intruder seemed pretty plausible to the authorities because South Africa actually has a very high crime rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so like, the, to them, it was kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, what year was this again? Um, this is actually in 2015. 
Okay. So it's not, there's still, um, like active segregation, uh, yes. but it's not like, uh, you know, sanctioned segregation. So there still is like hostilities and tensions in South uh, Africa. <laughs> yeah. And Africa itself, um, when you're talking like the end of apartheid and some of these other things, like there's a lot of political tension and racial tension that is happening in that country that I think a lot of us are not aware of because obviously we are dealing with our own racist bullshit <laughs> forever pretty much <laughs> yeah uh but that definitely plays into this idea of yeah it wouldn't be that weird to have this mass intruder come into this house and attack people mm-hmm. so i did mention earlier that marley would eventually recover but one of the many unfortunate things in this case was that when she did recover she also suffered from retrograde amnesia and couldn't remember mm. anything that happened on the night of the attack so she was unable to provide any additional details to police after an 18-month investigation police had made enough headway to bring Henry in, and on June 13th, 2016, uh, Henry Van Breda actually turned himself over to police and was arrested on three charges of murder and one one of attempted murder and one of defeating the ends of justice, which we know as obstruction of justice. He was given bail set at 100,000 rand, but on the conditions that he would turn over all of his travel documents, he wasn't allowed to leave the Western Cape. Um, he couldn't come within 500 meters of a port of entry, and he had to report to, he had to report to the Paro police, uh, police station twice a week, and he was not allowed to communicate with any of the state's witnesses. Hmm. Now, their investigation uncovered some really interesting things regarding the scene of the crime so obviously <laughs> as we talked about this the story of this intruder seemed pretty sketch to begin with yeah definitely <laughs> but we're also talking about a huge estate with like security systems and security guards and stuff mm-hmm the investigation found that security had not been breached on the night of the attack and that even if it had been, um, it would have ha- it would have required a considerable amount of knowledge and planning and skill to breach the security on this estate. On top of that, there hadn't been any reports of anything unusual from neighbors or security staff. And as I said, there was no signs of forced entry. Now, the Van Breda family also had a dog named Sasha that apparently had no reaction to the alleged intruder. Uh, not a not a great guard dog, I would say. Yeah, kind of like my dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He barks, Aww. but then he'll give you little kisses. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, Henry was actually asked about this uh, during his trial, and he described her as the opposite of a guard dog, but this was disputed by prosecutors who had found evidence to the contrary. One of the other things brought into question was the use of an axe in a B&E, like that seems kind of weird a weird choice of weapon to break into somebody's house with yeah unless you're 
nope, seems kind of weird. I was trying to come up with some plausible something, but I'm like, no, that's still weird. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Now, I had already mentioned that it was determined both the axe and the knife used in the attack had come from the Van Breda residence, but... Also, nothing was removed or stolen from the property, and it was found in what was described as in neat condition. And Mm -hmm. Henry had kind of attempted to explain this lack of a robbery by saying the intruder had been interrupted. Now, Henry claimed to have also been injured in the attack, but investigators found it very odd that someone who would murder an entire family, that they would leave only one member of the family relatively unscathed. That's a little sketch. Now, during court, prosecutors pointed to a lack of empathy and urgency during the emergency services called, but they also pointed to the injuries that Henry had, which were stab wounds to the, like, like chest and abdomen. These were very different to the injuries on the rest of the family. And later, it was determined that most, if not all, of the injuries were self-inflicted. According to uh, HuffPost, the judge in the case, Judge Siraj Desai, said, quote, The cut marks on Von Breda's chest were superficial and non-fatal. Incisions had an equal depth, were parallel, and avoided sensitive areas like nipples. The chest injuries were in a reachable area for self-infliction. It's like, I guess if you're going to stab yourself, avoid them nipples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After DNA testing, police were able to match the blood on his clothes to his parents and brother. To me, again, that's one of those things that doesn't necessarily indicate murder, because if you are finding your family, if you try to move them or resuscitate or whatever, like you're going to get some of that blood. But I think in this case, it was uh, the opposite. Hmm. This is real. This is a a weird one. (laughs) I know. Yeah. During the court proceedings, a timeline of events that unfolded at the Van Breda residence was laid out. So in the early hours of the morning on June 13th, neighbors heard raised voices coming from the home. This was attempted to be explained by the defense as a film being played at high volume. At 4.24 a.m., Henry placed a call to his girlfriend that went unanswered. Three minutes later, Henry did a search, a Google search for emergency numbers. And three hours after that, at 7.12 a.m., Henry placed a call to emergency services that lasted approximately 10 minutes. After he hung up, he called his girlfriend again. uh, And police were notified of the crime at approximately 7.15 a.m. and arrived on scene. Now, prosecutors argued that the length of time it took Henry to call emergency services, that it appeared he wanted the family to bleed to death. And he was Mm -hmm. asked about this during the trial, to which he said he collapsed for hours after watching his family be attacked. It's a little, it's hard to claim blackout when you are Googling emergency numbers (laughs) three hours before you call them. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if you black out to, like, the phone call that was made seemed, like, super coherent. Yes. Yeah. Like, I was in a a car accident when I was a teenager, and I smashed my face into the back of a seat. We were going so fast. I had my seatbelt on, and I smashed my face into the back of the passenger's seat, and Mm -hmm. I blacked the fuck out. And I was not – I was not coherent. I just remember – opening my eyes and seeing blood all over myself. 
Oh my god. And that's it. That's all I remember. So if you blacked out, you would not be coherent, okay? Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in times of trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, one of the things that you might be curious about is the motive for all of this. Although when you're talking about wealthy families, it almost always seems to be the same motive. Can you guess what it is? <laughs> insurance. Goddamn insurance. <laughs> so before moving back to South Africa, both Henry and Rudy had actually stayed back in Australia to finish up school at the University of Melbourne. And when they had come back, Henry was reported to have been taking a gap year. Now, <laughs> gap years. Ugh. It makes it sound better than I'm just not going to college anymore. I'm not going to finish. I did take a gap year and I did finish and then I got about eight more degrees. <laughs> yeah. See, you did Which it right. Usually not the case. <laughs> um, th- it's also been reported that Henry was dealing with a drug addiction to what they call in South Africa, it's called tick, T-I-K, tick. Um, but this is basically slang for crystal meth, essentially. Tick is considered one of South Africa's worst drug epidemics, and its use has been increasing over the last like 10 to 15 years. Now, the thinking is that because Henry's parents had discre- discovered his drug use, they had threatened to cut off his allowance if he didn't stop. And due to this increased pressure, he may have been uh, pushed over the edge. It's always money. Always. Henry himself has actually not made any comment on his motives other than pleading not guilty during the time of trial. Um, Now, the trial itself started on April 4th, 2017 and would finish on May 21st, 2018. The court found Henry guilty of three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder and defeating the ends of justice. A couple weeks later, on June 7th, Henry was sentenced to three life terms for the murders, 15 years for attempted murder and 12 months for obstruction of justice. He, of course, appealed this decision. It was denied by the superior courts, and he currently remains in prison. Hmm. Not surprising. (laughs) and also not getting his allowance in prison so that's a thing (laughs) my allowance (laughs) my allowance yeah so that's the story of the vambretta axe murderers it's just entitled rich kids being shitty yep (laughs) always as you you would expect (laughs) yeah unfortunately (laughs) So before you yell at your parents about not giving you your allowance, check out this podcast. Need an escape? Vanish into the depths of a magic forest. Head out on an interstellar repair mission. Travel back in time to change the future. Explore inside someone or something else. Meet dragons, werewolves, birds, bears, aliens, mermen, and a man with a fishbowl for a head. All in 10 minutes or less every week. Tune in to 600 Second Saga for your weekly science fiction and fantasy escape. All right, guys, that has been our episode. Yay. Thank you again (laughs) for joining us. (laughs) We did it. We 
do want to let you guys know that unfortunately the true crime podcast festival that was happening in Kansas City, Missouri has been postponed. I think we kind of expected that, but we were waiting for the official yeah. word <laughs> before mm-hmm. before we did anything. So you can find out more information regarding um, tickets that you may have already bought or future dates or whatever at tcpf2020.com or on their social media. They're really making effort, I think, to get everybody updated. So keep an eye out for that. But if we end up going back, we'll let you guys know. But at the moment, we don't have anything until September, I think. Yay, you got the month right. (laughs) Yay! I know, I keep saying August. It's not in August. It's in September. It's wishful thinking, sooner rather Mm -hmm. than later. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Janelle, you want to tell us about, about our September event? I mean, sure. It's taking okay. place uh, in Elgin, and it is the Elgin Fringe Festival, Ooh. and we will be um, performing a live performance. It's a whole week of festivities, and they have everything you can imagine under the sun to come and check out. And if you're not familiar with Fringe Festivals, they are all things weird and strange and ooky and spooky and fun. So... Head on over to elginfringefestival.com to find out more information about who will be there, when, where, how to get tickets, all of that information, um, and then come out and see us. Have a grand old time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you would like to see us before then, you can because we <gasps> You can? Have- <laughs> yes. We started doing uh, live streams on YouTube. I think we might finish them up uh, towards the end of June. We'll kind of see what's going on with their shelter in place. But Yeah, or if martial laws enacted, who knows? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Immediately uh, go to the dark side. <laughs> so if you go to YouTube, search Bad Taste Crimecast, you will see us. You'll see some live streams we've done. You will see our episodes are now being released on YouTube. Um, you will see yes. special interviews that we've done. It's a bunch of stuff up there that you can check out if you wish. Yes. You can also go over to Patreon. Yes. And uh, get some more content for your ear holes. Um, for just a dollar a month, you can get access to all of the additional um, little bits and of crime news and stories and information and the extremely weird holiday special that I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you can either search us on Patreon or go to badtastecrimecast.com slash donate. It'll get you to the same place. While you're there, you might as well check out some merch. If you need a tank top because oh, yeah. it's getting hot outside and you won't actually want to yes. like get, get some fresh air or something. Mm-hmm. And they just added new uh, new colors and cuts to t-shirts, Ooh. so we added a few a few new things um, on there. Uh, so That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that is it for us for today. That's all she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. <laughs> we will see still, you guys. Still don't have the hype button. <laughs> I I still don't have the hype button, no. Uh, We will see you guys in two weeks. Stay safe and goodbye. See you later, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jim and Glim from over here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.